Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. A couple of weeks ago, Mark Hansen, who's director of the Brown Institute for Media Innovation and a professor at Columbia Journalism School, and someone I've had the opportunity to collaborate with and teach with over the years, came across a paper titled The Uselessness of AI Ethics in the online edition of a journal called AI and Ethics. Its author, Luke Munn, a media studies scholar based in New Zealand, points to over 80 lists of artificial intelligence ethical principles produced by governments, corporations, research groups, and professional societies. In his paper, he expresses concern that most of these ethics statements deal in vague terms and often lack any mechanism for enforcement. But in critiquing attempts at defining an ethical code for AI, he is not suggesting we let technology develop in an ethical vacuum. On the contrary, he wants us to think more deeply about the potential problems before deploying AI. Munn wants us to examine the existing systems of oppression into which AI technology is deployed, a concept referred to as AI justice. He also wants us to avoid vague terms and instead focus more narrowly on accountability and on better defined notions of accuracy and auditing of AI. Luke Munn's paper is part of a growing movement that sees the problems of AI less in purely computational terms, but instead as an area of social science. Ruha Benjamin, Timnit Gebru, Joy Bulamwini, Catherine D'Ignazio, Lauren Klein, and others look to historical and social contexts to ground their work and provide tangible examples of the complexities of auditing AI deployments. For this episode of the podcast, I turn the mic over to Mark Hansen, who spoke with Luke Munn about his ideas and how they connect to this broader movement. My name is Luke Munn. I'm based currently here in uh, Aotearoa, New Zealand, as a researcher, and I uh, will be moving shortly to University of Queensland as a research fellow there. My name is Mark Hansen. I am a professor at Columbia Journalism School, and I'm also director of the David and Helen Gurley Brown Institute for Media Innovation, located here at Columbia Journalism and also at Stanford Engineering. Luke, thank you for speaking to us today. So in, in terms of the flow of this, um, I thought we might sort of anchor it around the flow of your paper. But maybe to start, I was looking at your Twitter feed because that's what one does these days. Um, and uh, I noticed you started tweeting out short videos of technical keywords uh, that would be important to a new scholar in critical media studies. So maybe we can start our conversation with a definition. So your articles on AI ethics how do you define AI for the purpose of this discussion? Like what technologies you're considering? Um, or is it just about any degree of, of computation? Is that sort of fair game? Is there something fundamentally hard about collecting data and wedging computation in social or political or even cultural contexts? So what to you is, is AI for the purpose of this talk? Yeah, I mean, AI is a really broad term with lots of different definitions people give. Um, actually, in the, in the video series, I talk about AI first as a kind of research field, right, that emerges from sort of computer science, data science, and so on in the mid-50s around there, and then develops, you know, over the, over the decades into different schools and things like that. I think that's sort of a, quite a concrete way to think about it, about sort of where it comes from. And then um, I also talk about AI as a set of techniques, right, so that, you know, certain architectures, the perceptron, the neural net, 
certain techniques like backpropagation and so on that are really central to a lot of what machine learning is trying to do or does often. So even if we have these different schools, deep neural networks versus other architectures, right? A lot of them use the same kinds of techniques and architectures and models and things. So um, that's one way to sort of cluster, I guess, AI and think about it. And I think some of the other definitions that people use, you know, get into quite debatable territory around what is intelligence, what is agency, you know, how is it different from other forms of sort of computational thinking and decision-making. So in, in some ways, it's quite useful to kind of keep it quite concrete and also not to, yeah, not to go into those territories in some ways. No, I agree. I think things get murky if we start to, uh, because fundamentally, I feel like the some of the things that we're going to talk about are problems that come from definitional problems that come from collecting data, making categories, doing the sorts of things that one has to do when one is translating lived experience into some sort of data, and then the inevitable consequences of computation on that and what that means, whether we call it AI or not. In writing about um, AI ethics, you look at the moral principles that people have created that are meant to act as um, guardrails almost for applications of AI. But before we get into the effectiveness of the guardrails, can you tell me why we need them in the first place? Like what's at stake? What things can go wrong? So broadly, AI is uh, you know a powerful set of technologies and they are novel in some ways. And so that means that they introduce new capabilities, right? We can do new things with AI. And as AI technologies then get spun out into all these different um, sectors, different areas of work, things like welfare, things like the justice system, things like healthcare, then they they do have really concrete um, effects on people's lives and livelihoods. And so, you know, they can benefit lives, but also cause um, suffering. And so there's real stakes here when we talk about AI technologies. And so that's why we need to, you know, also think about, yeah, sure, their potential, but also their problems, right? And how do we critically examine those problems? How do we mitigate some of the issues that come with them? How do we put some sort of guardrails or safeguards in place? And so is that especially those who are already vulnerable, already marginalized, don't get hurt further by these new technologies. So one of the things you do in the paper is to sort of, there are collections of, of AI standards. And I was a little surprised. I think at some point you quoted over 80 different publications or, or standards sets, um, which I, I thought was a, a little bit surprising. Um, so there's no shortage of lists of ethical standards for AI, but you're critical of the enterprise. So what makes specifying an ethical code for AI so difficult and how do existing standards fall short of providing protection against some of the things that you talked about? Yeah, I mean, there's just this um, sort of deluge really of of AI ethical principles that have sprung up over the last few years. And in the paper, you know, I list all the ones that are on a national level as well as sort of industry bodies like IEEE and then, you know, tech company-led efforts like at Google and Facebook and so on. And even the, you know, the Vatican has their ethical AI principles. So I think that's kind of being one of the de facto turns, right? To this issue of, okay, AI, AI is, has the potential to cause problems. So how do we handle that? Well, 
let's just let's just come up with some ethical principles, right? The sort of seven points, seven values that we can put on a website somewhere. And already we can see that that's insufficient, right? It's not enough just to talk about sort of um, these high-minded principles that are quite vague and practice things like fairness and transparency and, and benefit to humanity and things like. And so in the paper, you know, it goes into the issues, I guess, with these principles, which we can dig into maybe in, in a bit more detail. But in in broad terms, I guess, the idea here is that these principles, you know, they're vague. On the one hand, they're they don't come with sort of enforcement, right? So that you can put them on your website or, or or your company press releases and things like that, but they're not actually enforceable. And they're often quite nebulous in terms of what these terms mean. And so um, there's this disconnect, right? There's a disconnect between principles on the one hand, these sort of high-minded principles, and the actual production and development of AI systems. And um, these two things don't really talk to each other in many cases. And so you get AI production continuing on as usual, while AI ethics is kind of left on the sidelines. I do, you make the point that I think the, the term you use is meaningless in the sense that there are pretty vague terms that are used and that it's possible for a corporate entity or, or without even without even going to corporations that just someone deploying AI can sort of pick and choose their definitions um, as, as they'd like, because things like fairness or sustainability or something like that have a lot of different meanings. And so it provides us with a capacity to kind of thread the needle in, in, in different ways. Yeah. I mean, these terms, they're just really contested terms. And um, even outside of AI and tech discourse, they've had this really long history of what does a particular term mean, like privacy, for instance. Um, privacy is notoriously difficult to define. And um, even privacy scholars sort of talk about it as an umbrella term, right, which contains lots of different definitions, contested definitions, incompatible definitions about what privacy means. And so when we start to just list these principles, no one's going to disagree with them. They sound great in practice, but again, they're, they're very vague and broad and they're very difficult then to um, translate into something more specific, more concrete. And then, you know, and that in some ways it, it's a great benefit to corporations who are then able to uh, massage the meanings of these um, words, these definitions to be whatever they want them to be, right? To line up with already existing corporate principles or business values, business logics, and so on. And yeah, I think that's that's really a problem because, you know, we have these things like being beneficial to humanity, but who are we talking about? We're talking about humanity. Even when we think about the history of, we look at like race and, and cultural studies and so on, it's clear like humanity is not this kind of monolithic thing, but um, some humans have been valued more than others in the past, right? And so there's a kind of ignoring, I guess, I get of this contested definitions of these terms and the fact that they have many different meanings over time and mean many different things to different groups and communities of people. 
I can imagine like I, I, I reviewed the ACM policy. It's, it's, it's less about AI in particular and more about the use of, of computation, but I, th- I think it has many of the characteristics you're talking about. Is it fruitless then for a for a, an organization like the ACM to want to have a, a code of professional ethics? I feel like that that's got to somehow describe the way we should be acting in in the world, right? Yeah, no, I wouldn't say it's it's fruitless. Um, I think it's good as a starting point, but again, I think firstly those principles need to be have some sort of clear consensus about what we mean by them, right? Even in if that consensus is just on a specific level, right? So if you're a developer, um, you're a member of the IEEE or engineer, right? Then this is what we mean by transparency, right? That transparency in that particular context um, for these engineers might mean that you are surfacing the ways in which your system is making decisions for the users, right? And that's quite a concrete idea of transparency it doesn't mean that we share all the data with everybody. It doesn't mean, you know, that we're a, a nonprofit or a financially transparent, right? These other meanings. Um, so already, I think you can start to see then how we develop consensus around a particular term. And then we have quite clear ideas of how that might be actioned or operationalized when it comes to certain products, certain services, certain AI models, and so on. So I feel like that part of part of the issue too is so, so in in defining you know what what's good for the world or or what's good for um for humanity as you said like like there are there are efficiencies that we may argue ai provides in terms of behaviors of systems or some something like that right so there can be a case made for efficiency of a system in one form or another whether whether that's um allocation of police resources or decisions about hiring or whatever. A lot of these are, a lot of arguments are made around efficiency terms to justify a kind of computational um, approach. I think where things run afoul then are, are the taking the outputs and and deciding, uh, are there consequences, like perhaps unintended consequences, let's give it that, of, uh, of particular kinds of, of computational interventions, right? So, um, the predictive policing algorithm that keeps sending police to the same neighborhood and the crimes really only happen where police are. And so the fact that police are in a place um, means there's more crime data from a particular pixel on the map. Um, and the more we keep sending our police there and then and then the it just it's a sort of a self-fulfilling cycle. Right. So, so I'm wondering, is part of the issue to align the definition or the, the high-mindedness of the, the ethical principles with, let's say, design strategy or design uh, goals, right? So that part of it is to not just focus on efficiency of one kind, but think about what, what, what else is happening, you know, in the non-projected part of the space. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's, that's spot on. I think, yeah, like I said, it's about um, these, taking these principles and then thinking about how they actually play out. I mean, efficiency efficiency is used to mask a lot of things, to sort of launder a lot of um, technical transformations, right? Who can be against efficiency? Um, it sounds great in practice. And there is an, you know, there is a case, like you said, to be made about you have a certain number of hours, you have a certain number of staff, and they have a you know amount of time. And so you do want to be able to get get certain things out of that at that limited resource. But you know, efficiency and the idea of progress and then technical 
development have been sort of linked together really strongly over history and used to, I guess, justify a lot of different technologies that have been problems. Um, and so I think along with efficiency, we should also start thinking about what are other values that, you know, or even um, values that counteract that or balance that in particular ways. Towards the end of the paper, you know, I talk about justice. Well, justice is not necessarily an efficient process, you know. It's something that might slow things down, might require discussion with communities, uh, might require some uh, different stakeholders getting together and sort of trying to hash out these terms you know, or testing, you know, on a smaller scale before you roll out your great tech platform to a million users, right? And all of that slows production down, slow development down, uh, all of that represents really a kind of uh, friction, right? Especially when you think about technical, the tech industry, which is always about moving fast and breaking stuff, right? That's the, that's the tech motto. And so, yeah, I guess we can th start to think then about other values that should be spliced in and um, need to be balanced with sort of de facto, I guess, tech industry values. Uh, I've done some recent work on um, thinking about AI from a Maori perspective, uh, tikanga Maori, which is like a Maori way of doing things, right? And there's a sort of series of tests that they have to decide what a Maori response would be um, in terms of a technical intervention. Does it stand up? Is it valid? Is it legitimate? Is it something that we want to have? And those tests you know, have a very different set of values than the kind of de facto Silicon Valley values. And then that kind of thing, you know, is maybe speculative, but it's quite productive and healthy, I think, to start to, you know, clash these, these value systems together and think how they might actually play out at the level of a AI model. You know, we, we've had a series of talks here at the, at the Institute about, about computation and, and how, um, what happens when data and computation enter political, social, cultural processes, systems. Um, and, you know, it's easy enough to, or it feels sometimes like there's an equation at, at play here, which is, you know, computation plus social system equals disaster. Computation plus political system equals disaster. Computation plus yeah. cultural equals disaster. Is it always the case that this plus this equals disaster? Or are there ways of, of getting, like, I like where you're headed with, with sort of a, a, a very local approach to thinking through mm. um, technology and how local understandings of, for a variety of reasons, I, I find that to be a, a really interesting direction. But like, is it always the case that when you weave computation and data into something, it's going to like go off the cliff or is there a way of it being beneficial to humanity or having some way out of it? And how do we get there? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the question, right? Right. Uh, I mean, my work has been crit critiqued in the past for being too, uh, I don't know, critical or, or negative in some ways to technical systems. Um, my latest book with um, Stanford was, around automation as a myth. And that particular book was, is in a way, it was a sort of a debunking exercise, um, criticizing uh, technical systems, automated systems, and so on. Uh, but towards the end of the book, I do try to uh, think about um, ways in which technologies could be used in more inclusive, more egalitarian, more sustainable ways. 
And that's that's a hard question. Um, I think there are cases, you know, like you said, it's not always the case that um, tech systems plus whatever equals disaster. But um, we do find that I think I would say in broad terms, what we see maybe in the last couple of decades is that these tech companies are developing products and services and so on that really permeate into everyday life in, in really profound ways. And in some ways, they're not equipped to deal with <laughs> to deal with that responsibility, right? In the paper, I talk about the education system, you know, for computer science and the fact that ethics really is marginal at best. You know, some of these courses, they don't have ethics until, you know, it's a sort of a nice to have at the very end of the course if they have time, right? So ethics and just a, an awareness of social relations, cultural relations, race relations, and so on, history, things like that, just has not been baked into computer science courses for a long time. And then as soon as you hit industry, right, it's no, it's no different. The tech industry, as I also mentioned in the paper, is notorious for, uh, for misogyny, for sexual harassment cases, for forms of racism in the workplace, um, anti-worker, and so on. So um, in, in many ways, it's not an ethical industry. And so when you're just putting these Band-Aid ethical principles on top, um, it's not going to be a, a solution, right? You're not actually impacting the sort of structural issues that are at work around AI production, right? And so you have, on the one hand, the set of seven principles or whatever. And on the other hand, you have sort of AI production, and the sort of particular kind of programmer uh, culture, which we're pretty familiar with by now, which actually builds these systems, right? And the two things are not talking to each other. Yeah, it's inevitable then that we get these kinds of um, issues that are coming out. And in some ways, like you said, they are unanticipated. In other ways, they're actually logical conclusions for for based on the industry and the cultures that produce them. Um, and so that's why I suggest, you know, towards the end of the paper that you have to think about these organizational issues, these structural issues and so on. Right. I mean, it, it reminds me a while back, I dot on a story uh, with the Marshall Project about predictive policing, about ad- allocating police resources using using a predictive model. And there were kind of three stages of it. There was one which was being offered by a company called PredPol, which was entirely black box. Right. And and you couldn't like you didn't know how it was working. You couldn't say why a particular pixel was uh, ranked as as being being high for potential crime in, in, in the next eight hours or something like that. So completely black box predictions. And then we had another group that was kind of using random forests so they could tell you which factors go into a neighborhood being dangerous, but they are being, you know, um, you know, having a high probability of crime taking place in the next eight hours. So, you know, they could tell you which factors are important, but couldn't tell you exactly what happened. Then you had a research group at Rutgers who was just doing a simple logistic regression, right? So not a fancy anything. And the clarity of their model allowed them to then say precisely why things were happening, presumably with a little bit less fidelity. But then they would use that openness of the model to convene 
neighborhood groups to talk about why these particular situations were dangerous or why these particular situations would lead to um, lead to the probability of crime being high. And let's talk about what we do besides just putting a police car there. You know, let's we can now talk about the actual you know, the actual thing that that's causing it so that we could maybe come up with a different, a different solution. Uh-huh. Um, and, and I feel like in those, in that spectrum, you know, you have the, you know, you have the one, the one piece, which is kind of, you know, like I said, black box and sort of optimized and thinking about efficiency and yesterday's data and so on. You have something in between, which is trying to sort of have a dialogue with a with with a community, and then you have you have the the sort of the research group with a very simple model that's coming in that says, you know, from the beginning we really want to to talk about convening groups in one form or another. And I feel I, I came away from that exercise feeling hopeful <laughs> that, that, that there was a path forward for modeling that might produce that, that it makes me hopeful for um, how we might apply some of this technology, right? That it's not yeah. trying to just optimize where police go, but instead it's opening a conversation with community partners about the nature of policing, police resources, other solutions, you know, to situations that that don't necessarily call for a police response, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. I think I like that example because uh, there's a mixture of transparency and action, right? Or some sort of accountability, some, some, you know, in the paper, we talk about transparency and transparency is really important. I think transparency has sort of been a watchword, a kind of buzzword almost for critiques of AI systems in the last five years, I would say, just, you know, just make it more transparent. It's a, it's a black box and that's justified in some ways. I think we definitely need to surface these decisions and understand why they're happening. I think transparency is just one part of the picture because transparency by itself doesn't mean that anything's going to be done, right? And we can look at you know open source systems, open source data, governments that release all their data. It's all transparent, but it doesn't mean that you have any way to address that or redress those wrongs if something goes wrong, right? So um, transparency then must be Accompany really closely, I think, by accountability. That's where things like policy can come into place. That's where things like community discussions and workshops and things can come up. And, you know, going back even to tech companies or to particular groups developing a piece of software and saying, well, this works really well and we're happy with this aspect, right? What if we would think this feature could use some work. Um, but have you thought about this, you know, adding this on? This would really help us. And so you get this kind of co-design in a way, right? A sort of a nominal version of co-design that actually provides meaningful feedback. And that feedback gets, it gets actually worked maybe into version 2.0 of the AI model or the software or whatever. Um, That to me is a pretty promising kind of strategy and also suggests maybe, you know, that, that these things, like you said, happen on a local or regional level. Um, so many of these AI ethical principles are are meant to be universal, and these systems are being rolled out globally. But actually, we have a lot of systems, organizations in place, expertise in place at the local and regional level. And you can see the ways in which particular groups, particular communities have certain needs. And those are not going to be the same, you know, even within the United States, for example, let alone um, thinking about you know, AI in India versus AI in China and so on. 
Um, and so that's why I've been thinking a bit more about um, the sort of locally um, grounded ethics, right? And if we think in some ways, you know, finding ethics for the entire globe is it's not only useless, it's a bit hubristic, right? It's a bit arrogant. Um, who are you, right? Who are you to define what values our community subscribes to? Um, and so that's why I think this kind of local, locally led, maybe a bit more grassroots focused work could be really productive. I had done some work getting ready. I attended some meetings getting ready for the 2020 census here. And there was a, a big push on the part of various community groups to make sure their their people got counted because um, a lot of money gets handed out from the census based on census numbers. And if, you're, if your people stay away from counting or don't fill out the forms, then they'll be underrepresented and you won't get the money you need to, to make your... So the participating in the census and census-like surveys becomes sort of something that locally people are are advocating for, right? Our community needs you to fill this out. Uh, and I, I recall that in one of the surveys uh, around, around COVID and trying to assess the economic impacts of COVID on families, um, the Bureau asked its first sexual orientation or gender identification question. It didn't never, I mean, I guess in the 2020 census, you could see us like a same-sex household, but this was the first explicit SOGI question it had asked before. It's a little off uh, off path, but the idea that that there are that there's something local that's being responded to here, um, oh. and in this case, maybe it's configuring, like making sure that people participate in the in the event, like answering answering the Census Bureau, responding to. But there was something very, that felt very of, of the same spirit, trying to get people to answer this question. And once this question was answered, there was visibility into something that we didn't have before mm. that could then prompt questions about, you know, why are LGBTQ-led families doing worse than other families or, or like yeah. things like that that wouldn't have surfaced if it wasn't for, you know, asking those kinds of asking those kinds of questions. This this is more of a data thing than an AI thing. Per no, se. but I think it's, it's really, like you said, you know, um, at the beginning of the conversation, capturing data, right, and generating data uh, has a long history. And that history absolutely figures into AI systems, AI models. Um, you know, even like if we think about the census, right, we go back to Herman Hollerith um, at the beginning of the 20th century, you know, he used a very technical new machine at the time to speed up the capture of data and process all that information in sort of record time. So this this, this very clear connection between technical systems and the capturing of data and then what you can do with that data, right? Because in that case, census data then provides a much sharper, fine-grained portrait for the state about what they're dealing with. Uh, which has, of course, it's, you know, upsides and downsides. Uh, but absolutely, like, the production of data and uh, what kind of data is being captured, what are the limits of data capture is um, really key. And when we think about bias in AI systems, which has been a quite a hot topic in the last few years, a lot of that comes down to the data that a model is trained on, right? And what is in that data and what is outside of that data. And so if you're training on a data set that's predominantly white on Caucasian, your model is going to struggle to identify, um, you know, Latin American subjects or um, misidentify people who are African-American or so on, right? These are some just well-known examples of sort of bias within AI systems. 
And that comes back to, yeah, the, the data, what gets left out and what gets captured. And some of that is, I think, about diversity, different people being represented within the data set. Um, and some of it is also about, I think, the limits, I guess, of like quantification, right? So when you think about life <laughs> and about how you convert the sort of rich messiness of life, everyday life and people's experiences um, and subjectivity and things like that into data sets, there's always going to be some kind of um, some things that are left out that are residue right? And some things that are captured that don't quite actually line up with people's lived experiences. And so you have this sort of hard-edged integers, these containers of numbers and, and graphs and stats and so on. And they give you a sort of a skewed version of reality. Um, and so one of the things then, when you think about making AI systems um, more inclusive, better for people in general, we can start to think then about the kinds of data that is captured and whose knowledge systems that are used, what kinds of data is privileged, right? Um, and often those systems are um, trained on data that um, has a certain point of view, a certain way of privileging kinds of information and leaves out the experiences and life things of, of, of other people. I usually assign for my students seeing like a state, the text and, and the ways in which data collection or, or the assembly of data at, let's say, the level of a state involves erasing a lot of local notions of how we, you know, we might describe uh, things in certain ways locally um, that don't necessarily carry over to other places, but because of st- because of the vantage of a state, we have to integrate that all there. Or uh, Ted Porter calls quantification a distancing technology, right? So that you are you are pushing away some of the local com- those components and instead finding a way to to be able to aggregate up to be able to then feed them into things like models of various kinds or tap tables or, or wherever it might go next. Yeah, yeah. Actually, in my, in my PhD, I looked briefly at the Austrian Empire and um, early, early on, like a couple hundred years ago, and they didn't have a street naming system, right? So when you told someone where you lived, it would be like, oh, I just lived down the street from the, the Golden Lion, the pub, right? Everybody knows that, right? It's just, so you have already this kind of local knowledge that's required to understand um, things about you and where you live and who you are. A lot of people with the same name or similar names, right? And so these census takers then, you know, started going through the city and was just overwhelmed because they're trying to assign these kind of numbers and street names to certain places. And um, they had a certain, you know, boxes and, and kind of fields that they were filling in and were required to, to enter. and the responses from these local people just kind of completely exceeded these kind of uh, standardized boxes that they were supposed to fill out. And so I think, you know, the census was supposed to take a few months or something. It ended up taking like two and a half years. <laughs> so that idea then of expressiveness of data at once at one moment, and then the the kind of necessity of of maybe removing some of that expressiveness for in favor of doing some kind of like larger scale analysis or some kind of uh, of modeling exercise computational exercise i want to go back for a second to um 
to a, a word you used earlier that I, I wanted to get a, at least for the for the audience here have an appreciation of. In the paper, you write about um, ways in which so so if if assigning ethical principles doesn't necessarily get us where we want to be because they're you know reliant on vague words that are hard to pin down or they don't have any actual enforcement behind them um, or they're focusing too much on the system itself and not sort of the broader context your, your your answer you have two answers one of them is to think instead about AI justice as opposed to AI ethics um, and you know corresponding with Julia Angwin before we had this conversation and you know, she she had thought about this idea of justice as similar to the way in which we've moved from a computational focus when talking about AI to maybe more of one that depends on social science and thinking about social science as a as a way of framing AI. Um, and that you know, she would in particular suggest that we give credit to. Um, the academics and primarily women of color who have forced that conversational shift from computational concern to more of a social science one. But but I think that that shift to social sciences is, is also code for this, the, what you're describing as a as a turn toward social justice as opposed to or sorry AI justice as opposed to AI ethics. And maybe if you could speak a little bit more about what you mean by AI justice uh, and and how, yeah, that, sure. how that starts to get us out of the problem of ethics. Yeah, I mean, in, in really broad terms, it's about um, like expanding the conversation, right? AI ethics are kind of as, can we think about them as a sort of, in the narrow terms, as a sort of moral principles. And those moral principles then are applied to an AI model or a piece of software or a platform and so on. And that's quite a narrow understanding of, of the problems, right? And we already alluded to the fact that a lot of these problems you know, are, are structural and organizational. And so simply having some principles and then saying that your piece of software kind of adheres to them doesn't really address the problem. And, um, you know, so I, I think some of that is also uh, this sort of naivety or obliviousness, right? So that if your production team, right, is, is the sort of homogenous culture of particular people, then you're not actually aware of a lot of these issues. Um, and so in a way, like you said, it's about a turn to social science. And, and I think really the, the key there is the awareness of broader issues that social science brings, right? It's about breaking out of this engineering, uh, this very strict, narrow engineering mentality about problems and solutions and about being aware then of um, social dynamics, right? Cultural dynamics, racial dynamics about how in history certain people have been um, privileged and other peoples have been, you know, um, oppressed or marginalized in particular ways. I think that's the one of the main contributions that social science then brings us. So AI justice then is about expanding that conversation. It's about, you know, thinking more broadly about, okay, who's in your company? Who makes up your team? Do we need you know, more diverse voices in that team? Do we need to consult then with a community that our, you know, our product is going to impact? Do we need to think about uh, the knowledge systems that our AI model is based on, right? With this, this particular knowledge system is very Western, for example, in that it privileges certain types of information and excludes other types of information, like we talked about 
previously, right? So, you know, when we think about these global systems and touching down on different levels, different places, different peoples, then, um, you know, we had this different, I guess, production and the way in which privileges certain things and those two things clash, I guess. Um, so AI justice really is about thinking more broadly and trying to address these structural and systemic issues at the core of technical production. So if we if we take that framing and maybe some of the other suggestions that you have in the paper, what does this say for, let's say, the CEO of a tech company? What, what, what do they take away? Like you've, you've just illustrated a few things, like maybe we should look at the at who we've employed, and maybe we should look at the, you know, the diversity of our workforce. Maybe we should look at, you know, um, perhaps more user-centered design, for lack of a better term. Um, CEOs of tech companies. Be nice. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, the, the advice I think would be, uh, the advice I give in the article is to, on the one hand, think more broadly. So it's about re- re- reflection, right? I think and about contemplating, like, sort of taking a hard look, right, at, um, your business, about your production crew, and thinking about, and your position, I guess, you know, what's the perspective that we're coming from, and what other perspectives might there be? I mean, I think that would be the first step, right, when we start to think about um, AI justice, social justice, and so it's sort of this hard kind of introspection, um, which can be difficult, but is actually kind of a starting point and to think about how we might start to address these issues. For policymakers, what do you advise? Yeah, so policymakers, I think it's about, as we mentioned uh, earlier, it's about um, distilling these principles down into actionable legislation that is actually enforceable, right? So you take something, again, like um, fairness or transparency, and you think really concretely about what that might mean on a policy level and then how that actually might be enforced. By enforcement, we're talking about fines. We're talking about, uh, you know, punishments of certain kinds because I think in the end, you know, people do what they can get away with, right? (laughs) And so policymakers then are about offering certain incentives and rewards and punishments to ensure that things get followed. And we think we think about, um, you know, China recently released this algorithmic regulation, which is about saying, you know, you can't actually offer people different prices. You, you always have to offer the same people the same prices um, when we have these sort of algorithmically priced products and services, right? And then, you know, China is a whole another debate, which I've critiqued in the past. But I think that particular example um, is quite strong because it's this very concrete, actionable thing. It's an affordance built into software, right? Um, and that you can implement at the code level. And then it's enforceable. Like they've said that we're not, you know, we're going to take this really seriously. And they've already demonstrated that in the past. And so in that particular example, I think is really strong in terms of what policy should be doing. So I'm a teacher. I teach in the School of Journalism. How am I how am I moving my students along to help be better consumers, uh, more aware of the systems around them? What does the the work you've done here sort of say to a to a teacher? It would say that you know, good education. That's what good education does, right? Um, a well rounded education, 
And that's something that's been eroded, I would say, right, over the last decade or so in terms of um, really narrowing the kinds of education that students get and privileging like STEM disciplines as a kind of a moneymaker at, at the end of your degree, right? But I think that's what good education in terms of is well-rounded and provides different perspectives from different people. In that sense, it's a kind of empathy generator, right? And what you should end up with for students at the end of an education is someone who's more socially, culturally, politically aware, um, someone who could not just code, right, but actually think critically about the kinds of things that you're putting out into the world and how they might impact people's lived experiences. And does it require a STEM background to be able to live? Like, I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm com- if I'm coming out in the humanities, do I, do I need to have a STEM background to ask questions about AI and the, the systems around us? Or do I, how do I, how do I, how do I become equipped? Yeah, I mean, as a user, you know, I think the the conversation is a little bit different in that you're not actively producing these systems. But, you know, this idea of tech literacy, I think, still has some value, you know, and thinking, again, critically about technical systems um, and asking questions. Uh, These are things that I think humanities has actually been really good at historically, and should continue to do, right? Because it's clear that that we need people to ask these difficult questions. And I think one of the things maybe I hinted at in this article, but didn't touch on so much, this idea of a bridge, right? A bridge, a figure that we really need um, in today's society, who is a bridge between um, something like social sciences and STEM subjects, right? Someone who understands at least the logic of technical systems, how they operate, not necessarily, you know, the nitty gritty details, but understands how they arrive at certain outputs, how things are produced, you know, generally speaking, how data contributes all to all of that. And then can also put that together with insights from race studies, cultural studies, political science, history, and so on, right? And then provide this kind of translation or bridge between these two worlds and help companies and organizations to make better products. I will put my journalism students up for for being part of that, a critical part of that bridge. All right. Well, thank you very much for spending an hour today. Yeah, no, thanks. That's Mark. It's very generous of you to uh, spend your time and and talk to me. And um, thanks to Justin for organizing all this as well. I think it's been a really fun conversation. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to Mark Hansen and Luke Munn. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.